Today, I would like to continue to talk about the book of Mark, and we are into the uh, we are into chapter eight, halfway to the Gospel of Mark. There are sixteen gospel in the book of Mark. Sorry, uh, sixteen chapter in the Gospel of Mark, and today we are at chapter eight, and we are halfway through. So I hope that the series of the book of Mark will be a blessing to you so far. And today, as we read the first chapter. The, sorry, the first part of chapter 8, we will be coming into three stories. Three very puzzling stories. And throughout the Bible, there are many puzzling moments. Things that God do, things that Jesus did, sometimes where we do not fully understand why God did what He did, uh, God did, what he did and why Jesus did what He did. There are times also, when we read it, it is sometimes offensive to us. As last week, I've already explained to you in chapter 7, where Jesus referred the Gentile woman as a dog. But the Bible is silent as to why. And we cannot presumptuously speak for God, saying this or that, when the Bible didn't offer any explanation. But we can piece together, theologically and contextually, the idea of why God did so and come up with an educated, intelligent guesses to try to make sense of the puzzling moment that we read in the Bible. And this is how we can move from puzzling moments into big picture moment. From question moments to aha, I understand kind of moment. From uncertainty to certainty. So, let's get into these three stories in these chapters which are full of puzzling moments. The first puzzle, the feeding of 4,000. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 to 10. Let me read to you this. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. He, uh, his disciple answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Now, as we read the first 10 verses of chapter 8, we read that Jesus performed the miraculous of the feeding of 4,000 people. But two chapters earlier, in chapter 6 of the Gospel of Mark, we read that Jesus performed the famous feeding of 5,000. Jesus using five loaves and two fishes to feed 5,000 in chapter 6. And now, in chapter 8, we read that Jesus seemingly repeat this miracle. Why is there a need to repeat this miracle here in chapter 8? Now, I believe that there are at least two reasons. First, it is for the benefit of the audience, of the people who are there. Secondly, it is for the benefit of the disciple. Now, I believe that the feeding of 5,000 in chapter 6 and the feeding of 4,000 in chapter 8 both communicate a very important message. Now, although the feeding of 5,000 and the feeding of 4,000 it's very similar in many ways, but there are at least uh, uh, two decisive differences that I want you to take note. Number one is where the place it took. Uh, where where the, uh, number one is the place where the miracle took place, and number two, the lesson that Jesus want to bring up. Now, the feeding of five thousand in chapter six occurred in Galilee. It is a Jewish territory. And now, in chapter 10, the feeding of 4,000, it occurred in Decapolis, a Gentile region. So the miraculous feeding of 5,000 and 4,000, it foreshadowed the miracle and the provision of God, both to the Jews and the Gentiles. God fed the 5,000 in a Jewish territory and the 4,000 in a Gentile territory. So God is providing a lesson here that he is able to provide for both Jew and Gentile. 
But last week, as we read chapter 7, it is a story that Jesus told that he came for the Jew first and for the Gentile. But today, we learn that God, Jesus himself, will still provide that miracle of bread for the Gentile also. So, this is a deliberate act of God to show that Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life. He is the Messiah for both Jews and Gentile alike. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. Every person, Jew and Gentile, he get, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believed in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is our God. These words tell us that God sent Jesus the bread of life, the bread of heaven for the entire world, for both Jews and Gentiles. So, God did the feeding of 5,000 as a sign to the Jew. And now, in this chapter 10, God did the feeding of 4,000 as a sign to the Gentile. So, both Jew and Gentile, God, Jesus, declared himself as the Savior and as the Messiah. Jesus also repeated the feeding of 4,000 for the benefit of his disciples. When Jesus performed this miracle again, he was providing a teachable moment. Jesus never wastes any moment to teach, whether to teach the crowd or to teach the disciple. So here, Jesus wanted to teach the disciple, to teach them that even though he came for the Jew first, his mission is for the entire world, for all nations, all languages, all tribes, all tongues. And it was to help the disciples to relearn the lesson that they missed in the first feeding, the feeding of 5,000, that Jesus is the Messiah. He has both the compassion and the capacity to be the bread of life. That Jesus has compassion to care for people and also he has the capacity to do so. Jesus is not here to just to teach, preach, perform miracles and go. He is not here to touch and go only. He came, he had compassion of people and he's able to do that miraculous healing. And God is that bread of life. Because the disciple is asking Jesus in this desert of, Galil, uh, of, of uh, Decapolis and the disciple asks, these are Gentiles. Why would, want we, why would we want to feed them? And even if we want to feed them, where do we have enough food to feed them when we are in this desert place? So, it will be a deja vu moment for the disciple because they ask the same question again when they face the same situation in chapter 6. They would have asked this question in chapter 6, but the disciple of all people as Jesus repeats that moment, these miracles again, they of all people, the disciples, should have known that Jesus is going to perform another miracle. It is the same setting. It is the same problem. Although it's a different place, the disciples should have known. They should have nodded with one another and said, yes, here we go again. Jesus is going to perform another great feeding again. But they forgot. They asked Jesus again, Lord, how do we feed these people here? Where do we get the bread from? So, this is how Jesus replied. Mark chapter 8, verses 2 to 3. Jesus said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. The reply of Jesus is this, I have compassion. Jesus says that he has compassion on who? The Gentile people. Now notice that the crowd didn't do anything that deserved God's provision. They are not Jews. They are Gentile. They didn't come to worship or serve Jesus. They didn't sign up for any discipleship program. They didn't bring any new recruits or new friends to Jesus. They didn't participate in any of Jesus' mission. They didn't contribute to any of Jesus' mission. But yet, we read that Jesus says, I have compassion 
on these people. The Messiah cares for the people. Today, I want you to know with certainty and with confidence that in the midst of life, there will be uncertainty. But we know for certain, in confidence, that Jesus cares. Jesus has compassion for you and for me. So, tell the person next to you. Just look at the person next to you and say, Jesus cares for you. Now, also, take note that number is not an issue for Jesus. Now, Jesus didn't say, oh dear, 5,000 people. It may be too many for me. Or it may, Jesus didn't say, oh dear, so many people. I'm not sure I can do it or not. But Jesus knew what he was going to do. And he has the capacity, the capability to do it. He has the heart to do it. He didn't tell his disciples, well, 4,000 people, too little. Last time I fed 5,000. This time I want 10,000. You see, numbers is not an issue for Jesus. We always need to come before the Lord knowing that yes, God created science, God created logic, but we cannot depend on science or logic alone. There are times that God will do things which are out of the ordinary, out of the science, out of the logic, out of reason. And that is called miracle. And we need to know that God is able to. God is not looking at number. God is not looking at whether you have enough or not. But as long as you have faith, as long as you trust in the Word of God, as long as God spoke, we will obey and we will do and we will see God's power. Whether Jew or Gentiles, male or female, rich or poor, common people, ordinary people, whoever we are, God purposely went out of His way for you, for me. As in this chapter 10, Jesus purposely went out of the way into a Gentile territory to feed the 4,000 people in the desert of Decapolis. And today, you and I, we are Gentile. We are non-Jew. And Jesus loved us the same. He cared for you. He cared for me. And He went out of the way for you and I. Today, let's have confidence, the certainties that Jesus cares for you, Jesus cares for me. But the lesson I believe that Jesus wanted to teach the disciple through this feeding of 4,000 is that God uses people to care for people. Now, why do you think that Jesus asked his disciple to look for food? Jesus, the one who turns water into wine, the one who can do miraculous things, don't you think that he can just turn rock in the desert into bread for people? Don't you think he can turn the grass into fishes for people to eat? Yes, he can. But he did not. Instead, he asked the disciples to look around and see what you have. Why did Jesus do that? Because Jesus wanted the disciples to look for supply. Now, do you think Jesus needs supplies? Certainly not. But Jesus did that so that he will use people, partner with people for his miracles, for his plan. That's why Jesus asked in Mark chapter, five, uh, Mark chapter 8, verses 5 to 7, How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks. He broke them and gave them to his disciple and asked the disciple to distribute to the people. And they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. You see, Jesus uses normal things. Bread, small fishes, normal things, and also normal people like you and I to work out His blessing for the world. Now, I hope that you will be reminded today that 
Jesus knows your need. Jesus knows your every need. But at the same time, as you have need, He's able to supply for your need. But when He supplies for your need, He will partner with you. He will, at times, ask you to look for the supply. Many times when we have need, we ask God and says, God, supply for my finance. Supply for this and that. We are expecting that God will give us a windfall. That God will open opportunity for us. And the opportunity will come to us. Yes, God can do so. But there are times, as we read here, that God will ask us to look for supply. But the supply is there. We have to look. Because God says so. We act when God say so. So God supplies all our needs. But at the same time, as God, apply, uh, as God supplies for us, we need to also be a blessing. God supplies for our need so that in turn, we are able to supply for other people. You are familiar with this phrase, we are blessed to be a blessing. Now, don't just call upon God for blessing and provision and then you hoard and then you just keep all the blessing for yourself. Don't think that you need God to bless you until you have enough, until you are okay. Then only you can bless other people. Let me tell you, church, as you, are, as you have been blessed, if you have been blessed by God right now, even though not to the fullest, but you can still be a blessing for others. You don't need to wait until you are blessed to the fullest. Then only you will bless others with the extra that you have. God works in a miraculous way. Even though you do not have the extra, you can still be a blessing in many, many ways. God can use you as a channel, as a vessel of blessing, even though you are asking God, you are in need, and when God bless you. So do not just hoard God's blessing. Don't think that you can only bless other people when you have enough or when you have extra. God poured out His love so that you and I can love other people. God reached out to you so that you can reach out to other people. Now, I wish I can talk more about this. Spend another one or two hours to talk about how we can be a blessing and a channel for other people, especially during this pandemic. How can we can be a blessing and a vessel and a channel, especially to the mission field? during this time of need. But I believe that there are two more stories that I want to highlight to you through this chapter 8 today. So, to the first story, which is so puzzling, why Jesus repeat another feeding? He fed 5,000 people in chapter 6 and now he fed 4,000 in chapter 8. Why did he do so? We learn that God is compassionate. Jesus cares for you and I. He has the capacity He's able, more than able, to bless you and I. And He's looking for you and I to participate together. Don't shrink back. That we will do our part together with God to be a blessing for other people, for His work on earth, for His work in your life. And when God bless us, we will be a blessing to others. Let's come to the second story, second puzzling moment the encounter with the Pharisee. Now in this passage, the Pharisee came to Jesus asking for a sign. In other words, they came to Jesus asking Jesus to prove himself because he claimed his identity, he claimed his authority. So the Pharisee came to Jesus and said, Jesus, prove yourself. Prove yourself. Because the Pharisee are still doubting who Jesus is. But when they came to Jesus, they want to come to discredit Jesus. They came to test Jesus. And that's why after this episode, later on, in private, Jesus asked the disciple, as the Pharisee questioned my identity, when Jesus is privately with his disciple, he asked his disciple, who do you think I am? Now, this is a message for next Sunday. Stay tuned for next Sunday, alright? Now, let's read about Jesus' encounter with the Pharisee in this passage. Mark chapter 8, verses 11 to 13. 
the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus, to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat and crossed over the other side. Now, this is another puzzling moment. Why did Jesus told the Pharisee, there is no sign for you, and then just left? Now, we read in the Bible, and also in the entire book of Mark, that Jesus spoke with power, authority. He's able to perform many miracles. But where did he get his authority from? Certainly not from his influence and the follower that people gave to him. So, the authority that Jesus had, seemingly because he is from Nazareth, a town which is, which is, which is very secluded, not a famous town, and he's just a son of a carpenter. That's why the Pharisee is so puzzling. Where did Jesus get his power from? Where did Jesus get his authority from? How can Jesus substantiate his claim and his power? So, the Pharisee came to Jesus, wanting to vindicate Jesus' authority. They asked Jesus for a sign. Now, why a sign? Because asking for a sign is part of a prophetic culture of the Jew to make sure that the person is authentic and genuinely having authority from heaven. And for the Jew, it's a legitimate way to prove or disprove whether the power and authority is from God or not. So it is something that's practiced as a norm in the days of the Jew and in ancient time. For example, during the time of Moses, Moses approached King Pharaoh and he approached Pharaoh as God's spokesman. He demonstrated the authority and the power that God gave to Moses. And with such authority, uh, authority Moses spoke and performed the sign, the template. Moses spoke and there's a sign, the template. So, this is the sign that people are looking for to vindicate the power and the identity of Jesus. Again, in 1 Kings chapter 7, when Elijah entered into the presence of King Ahab to rebuke King Ahab because King Ahab allowed the worship of Baal, an idol in the nation of Israel. Now, King Baal, uh, sorry, uh, 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 the god Baal, Baal is a god of fertility, of rain. And then, when Elijah rebuked King Ahab, he spoke with authority, but he also came with a sign. He says that, I rebuke you because you allow the worship of idol, and so there will be drought for three years. You see the connection here? Elijah spoke with authority, and there's a sign. Three years of drought. Why drought? Because the idol, God Baal, is the god of rain. God of fertility. You see the contrast here? So, asking for a sign is something that the Jew do. It's a legitimate way to, 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 to ask of your identity and your power. And there's so many other examples like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. When they spoke, all of them confirmed their authority by performing signs and wonder and miracles from God. And then, here comes Jesus, and Jesus says, no, I'm not going to give you any sign. So the Pharisees thought that they are asking a legitimate question to Jesus. Jesus, show us a sign. Now, if I am Jesus, I will tell the, 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 the Pharisees, and says, well, you ask me for a sign, I will give you a sign. Look at these 4,000 people. I have just fed them. And then I have seven basketful left over. Look at it. Just a few bread and few fishes. I can feed 4,000. That's the sign for you. And by the way, if you're hungry, there are seven baskets full. Help yourself. That is a sign. But Jesus did not. 
Jesus did not. Why? Because Jesus detected the heart and the attitude by which the Pharisee came to Jesus. He detected the problem of pride and unbelief. And that's why the Pharisee came to argue with Jesus. The Bible says the Pharisees came to test him and argue with him. They came to question Jesus, to interrogate Jesus, to scrutinize Jesus. They are not here to learn or to inquire from Jesus. They are not here to seek the truth, nor are they coming to learn from Jesus. So they came to argue, they came to test Jesus. They were pride, arrogance, unbelief in their heart. Mind you, these are Pharisees, so-called leaders, religious leaders of the community who knows the Torah, who knows the Lord of God, who knows the Word of God, and they have been believers of God all the days of their life. But yet, they have pride, arrogance, unbelief. So much so that they come and tested Jesus. But yet, although a lot of Pharisees are rebuked by Jesus, there are some who knew and who acknowledged that Jesus is truly the Son of God. For example, there's one Pharisee who came and met with Jesus secretly at night. And John chapter 3 verse 2 says this. This Pharisee came to Jesus. His name is called Nicodemus. And he says this, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. So not all Pharisees are bad. There are some good ones. So, in general, when the Pharisees come to ask Jesus for a sign, they are asking to test Jesus. It's a mark of unbelief. And that's why, later on, we read in the same chapter, chapter 8, that Jesus left the Pharisee, went into a boat, and then suddenly, tiba tiba in Bahasa, tiba tiba, in the boat where Jesus was with the disciple, and the disciple were hungry, they took out bread. And suddenly, tiba tiba, Jesus says this, Mark chapter 8, verse 15. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisee and of the Herod. Now, church, tiba tiba. Imagine this, after the church service, you and I as a pastor, we went out for a meal and then you open up your bread, your nice bread, deeper, deeper, your pastor come and tell you, be careful of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Herod. It's so puzzling. When you read this, do you feel very puzzling? I felt very puzzling. Deeper, deeper, you know. But yet, let me tell you this. With the context of what is happening, with the rebuke that Jesus had for the Pharisee, with what Jesus said thereafter, when Jesus warned the disciple in the boat, Jesus warned the disciple to be aware, uh, to beware of the heart and the mind of the Pharisee. And that's what Jesus is talking about. And also, when Jesus says the yeast of the Pharisee, Jesus is talking of the heart and the attitude. And also the yeast of Herod. What does it mean? It means the pride and arrogance of power and authority. Herod, someone with power and authority. Now, yeast is often used by God as a metaphor for something that corrupts. And yeast also uh, is used in the Bible to represent sin. That's why God commanded the Israelites when they come out from Egypt that they are to make bread without yeast and bring it to them when they come out from Egypt to the wilderness. And thereafter, whenever they observe the Passover meal, the Seder meal, that they are always to eat the bread made without yeast. And whenever they celebrate Passover, they must make sure their entire household, they must search every corner, everywhere, even under your bed, to make sure that there's no yeast. That is the metaphor. To get rid of corruption. To get rid of sin. Yeast is representing sin. And that's why 
Jesus knew the pride and arrogance and the corruption of heart and mind that the Pharisee has. And no amount of sign and wonder will satisfy their, their closed mind, their hardened heart that the Pharisee had. And that's why when Jesus told the, the, uh, the, the Pharisee that there's no, not going to be a sign, Jesus is rebuking them. And we also get another clearer picture in Matthew chapter 12, in another gospel, in the same context. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 to 39. He says here, Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And Jesus answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, but none will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be there three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus didn't give any sign. But Jesus rebuked the Pharisee saying that no sign for you, but the only sign is a sign of Jonah. So what is the sign of Jonah? It is a metaphor to represent Jesus' crucifixion, burial, and resurrection in three days. And that is the only sign that Jesus will perform. But it's not for the Pharisee. It is for the entire world. So when we have our mind closed, our attitude with pride, we will not see God. But when we come to God with our humble heart, open mind, readily to accept and obey the truth of God, He will give us the confidence and assurance and the certainty in life. But we must have a heart that's ready and a mind that's open. And that's why earlier in chapter 4 of the book of Mark, we read in the parable of soil that Jesus says that when the seed is being sown, there are four types of soil. And soil number four is a fertile soil, fertile ground. And we must always maintain the receptive heart, responsive mind. That kind of soil. Mark chapter four. And this is why it's very important to always be open even though we are Christian for many years. Now, there was an evangelist in India who was traveling in a train and seeing the opportunity for evangelism, he gave a small booklet of the book of John, the Gospel of John, to a local in the train. And that local person took it, tore it into pieces, threw it out of the window of the train. And while scolding the missionary for trying to convert him, to believe in a foreign Western God. Now, along the railway, a man who is poor and hungry found a piece of that gospel tract that has contained four words, the bread of life. Curious, he went around asking, what does this mean? The bread of life, the bread of life. Finally, this poor and hungry man met with a Christian who explained the gospel to him. Eventually, he put his faith in Jesus and he himself became an evangelist. He bought a Bible, studied, read, and he started to share the word to others. And eventually, he became an evangelist to his own hometown. You see, God provided spiritual food for this poor and hungry man. He was poor and hungry physically, but he also was poor and hungry spiritually, searching for the bread of life. And with a receptive heart, responsive mind, he found Jesus, the bread of life, and he found eternal life and found the purpose to live for. So today, I want you to understand when Jesus performed the miracle of feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, Jesus was declaring himself as the bread of life. The bread from heaven sent by God to give us abundant life on earth, eternal life in heaven. And this bread of life is provided for both Jews and Gentiles because God is compassionate. God is able and God uses us, partner with us for His purpose. But we also must be very careful when we approach God so that our heart, our mind 
will not fall into the trap of being self-righteous, pride and arrogance like the Pharisees. Even though we are Christian for many years, always cultivate a humble, teachable and a learning heart. And that's why we must come to God with that attitude. Even today, as you are Christian for many years. So let's come to the third puzzling moment in this chapter 8. Now, this is a story, an episode of Jesus healing a blind man in the village of Bethsaida. It is still a Gentile territory, but he went from Decapolis to a village of Bethsaida. And Mark chapter 8, verse 22 to 25, it says here, They came to Bethsaida, Jesus and the disciple. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by hand and led him out the village. When he had spit on the man's eye, wow, and his hand on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? The man looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. And once more, Jesus put his hand on the man's eye. Mind you, the spit is still on Jesus' hand. Once more, Jesus put his hand on the man's eye. Then his eye was opened. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Another puzzling moment. Now as you read this story, I'm sure you have asked this question. Why is the need to spit? Some biblical scholar believe that saliva was commonly believed to have healing effect in the ancient time. It is commonly used to, uh, in, a, uh, in a healing process. Saliva is commonly used in a healing process. This also to explain why Jesus spit and touched the tongue of a mute person in chapter 7 last week, as I already mentioned to you. So last week in chapter 7, this week, today in chapter 8, Jesus spit and healed a person. Why? Now, it is suggested by some scholar that the act of spitting using saliva could have been an added action by Jesus to increase the faith and raise the expectation of the blind man since it is normal to use saliva in a valid healing process. Now, as we read in many previous occasions, we also read that Jesus is powerful more than enough to heal. He certainly do not need to spit to perform any miraculous healing, right? We read that Jesus usually will stretch out his hand, touch a person. And sometimes Jesus will stretch out his hand, embrace a person, and that person got healed. And there are times that Jesus can still heal even though the sick person is far, far away. Jesus spoke and the sick person far, far away can be healed. But why Jesus need to spit? Isn't it puzzling? Now, this is my take. I believe that Jesus did this because he was being compassionate to the person. Because this was the flow. Jesus started off by feeding 4,000. Jesus says, I have compassion with the people. And as the Gospel of Mark, the writer, Mark, continued to write, he had this flow of thoughts. Jesus was being compassionate and personal. And it is possible that Jesus did it to show his compassion to the blind man. Now, theologically, let's remember, from the very beginning, when Jesus created the heaven and the earth, when Jesus created everything, he spoke and everything came into being. He spoke, the sun, the moon, the star all appear in their own place. But when it's time to create the first human being, Adam and Eve, God personally crafted the man, the women, out of his own hand, out of the dust, and he breathed his breath onto them. God used his own hand 
to create the first person on earth. It was a touch of intimacy. And with the same hand, Jesus is now touching this blind man. He applied his own saliva on him. And I believe that it was a touch of compassion, a touch of intimacy. Now, after Jesus touched the blind man, the blind man can only see shadow. He can't see clearly. He can't see fully. And then Jesus touched him a second time. And after that, this blind man can see clearly. His eyesight was totally, completely healed. Here is another puzzling question. Why is there a need for a second touch? Now, we must not assume that Jesus messed up the first time. Lah, huh? No, do we assume that he's not powerful enough? Maybe we may say, oh, maybe because yesterday Jesus didn't sleep well, so his battery power, his miracle power is not strong enough. We can't assume that, no. Because he's God. He's all-powerful, almighty. But I believe that this episode, this healing, teaches us two lessons. First, Jesus healed people in a variety of ways. In this case, Jesus used a two-step process. Why a two-step process? Because I believe that in this process, with each step, Jesus was shaping and developing the man's faith to believe that God is able to do something different in his life. To have the patience and the complete trust on God in the process. And indeed, he was miraculously, miraculously healed. So, in our life, God can heal. God can answer prayer. Be assured of that. But you may have been praying for many, many, many times, many, many years. You are seeing slow progress. It may be the case that Jesus is using process, step by step, to provide the miraculous healing. God may not heal immediately, but he might do it in a journey, a series of steps and processes. And that's why don't lose hope. Don't give up. Don't be dismayed. God is still working. Just like in a pandemic, we have been praying that God will take away and stop the pandemic. But yet, after more than a year, today, we see the number in our country rising. Why? Is, is it because God is not powerful enough? Is it because we are not praying enough? I believe that that time that God may want to use process, instead of just healing us totally, God wants to take the opportunity to help us to learn the lesson, to make that change. And after that, miracle will come. Even though when we don't see it, even though when we don't feel it, God is still at work. It's a process. And I believe that that's why Jesus took two steps to heal this blind man. And after the healing, another puzzling moment came. In the beginning of this healing, we read that Jesus took this blind man out from the village. Why? And after Jesus healed this blind man, Jesus told this blind man and says, don't go back to the village. Go home. Why? One possible reason is because of the hardness of heart and unbelief attitude of the people in Bethsaida. Now in the Gospel of Matthew, we read that Jesus sharply rebuked the people in the village of Bethsaida. Let's turn to Matthew 11, 22, uh, 20 to 22. And this is what Jesus says. Then Jesus began to denounce the town in which most of his miracle has been performed because they did not repent. And Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. Now, Jesus may take this blind man out of the village, away from the depravity, stubbornness, 
an unrepentant heart of the people in the village of Bethsaida. Because the village of Bethsaida, as we read in the book of Matthew, is a really wicked place. The Bible says that it is worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. And after the healing of the blind men, that's why Jesus says, don't go back to the village. Go home. Share this news to your family. Rejoice with them. But there, are, and there is another reason, I believe, that why Jesus told this blind man not to go back to the village. Now, Jesus, this is not the first time for Jesus to tell the people that he healed not to go around and tell other people. There are many times that Jesus says, after I heal you, don't go and tell people. Why? Because Jesus has his time and timing on when and how he revealed himself as the coming king, the promised king and the Messiah. Now this is consistent with what Jesus did. He always do that if you read the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Jesus always tell the people that he healed, don't go back and tell people. Go home and rejoice. Because Jesus wanted him to keep this to himself so that if and when people heard about how powerful Jesus is, their heart may not be ready to respond in a positive way, especially the people in Bethsaida. If they knew that Jesus is so powerful, the people of Bethsaida may receive it for the wrong reason. They will either mock him or ridicule him or they will forcefully make Jesus the king and the leader of their people to lead them out of the oppression of the Roman Empire. They will not see that Jesus came to forgive sin, to give salvation of the soul. They will not see that Jesus is the bread of life. In other words, the people of Bethsaida were blind. They had blindness in their mind, in their understanding, in their heart. They have eye but could not see. They have sight but no insight. Even today, many people have this kind of short-sightedness. They come to Jesus only for their own need to be met. But Jesus is concerned more than their needs. Jesus is concerned for their holistic well-being. Jesus is concerned for their spiritual need also. And that's why Jesus instructed the blind man who is now miraculously healed, not to go back to the village. Go home. Rejoice with your family members. And so today, let's beware that we may come to Jesus with the wrong reason. Yes, Jesus is compassionate. Yes, Jesus cares for you. Yes, Jesus is able. Praise God for that. But we don't come to Him just for Jesus to heal our sickness, meet our need, provide for all that we are lacking, we come to Jesus also because we are first and foremost sinner in need of God's grace. You and I, today, Romans chapter 3, verse 22 to 23, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So today, church, I want to point out to you that beyond all the puzzling episode and story that we have read, and many that we will read in the Gospel of Mark later on, there is one important message. And this message is that God cares for us. He sees our heart. He knows our need. But He knows that the greatest need that we have is the need of a Savior, a need of forgiveness of sin, a need to be reconciled to God, to have a newness in life, to walk in obedience with God. And this is a walk of pilgrimage, of discipleship with our Lord Jesus. And it is expressed in obedience with our Lord Jesus Christ and also with a deepening of faith as we live with Him. 
And as I come to the conclusion today, church, I want to come, I want all of you to learn to come to God with the right reason. And the first reason is to understand that you and I, we sin against God, separated from God because of sin. And that God loves us so much that He sent His Son Jesus to die for our sin. So that in believing in Him, you and I can have newness and everlasting life. We all know this. But there's a problem. We have a God who can turn bread and small fishes into food that can feed the crowd of 4,000 hungry people in the wilderness. And when they eat to their full satisfaction and they have experienced an amazing, abundant miracle. And yet, the Pharisees still have hardness of heart. They still come to Jesus asking for more sign, more miracle, more proof. And that is what we may be today. Failing to see that Jesus performed the greatest miracle on the cross. On the cross. Because at the cross is a miracle of forgiveness. At the cross is a miracle of redemption of sin. At the cross, Jesus died for our sin and the sin of humanity. And by believing in Him, we might have eternal life. So that at the cross, we find the power of God for newness in life. So don't come to Jesus for the wrong reason. Come to Jesus because He's the bread of life. He gives life. And in this newness of life, we walk in discipleship unto Him. And with such spiritual hunger, we come into God in our lives, asking God to meet our deepest need, not just our physical need, not just our mental and emotional need, but our deepest spiritual needs. And that need is for our soul to be forgiven, renewed, accepted and reconciled with God and with man. And that's why we need, to, we need Jesus in our lives. Not just for what He can provide for us, but for the bread of life. He can satisfy just like He satisfied the 4,000 people. In the midst of our loneliness, in the midst of our misery, our depression, our pride, our self-righteousness, Jesus came and died for us. Therefore, church, don't come to Jesus with wrong reason. Come to Him that we may have life and life abundantly. And at the lowest point of our life and the weakest time of our need, Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our strength. At the darkest moment of our life, Jesus is the light. At the poorest, Jesus is is our provider. At the saddest, Jesus is our joy. At our angriest, Jesus is our peace. At our ugliest, Jesus is our beloved. At our worst, Jesus is our best. So today, let's come to Jesus with the right reason. Casting all our cares upon Him because He cares for us. He's able to do so come to Him. Tell Jesus and say, Jesus, I come to you today. Not just for my physical, emotional, or mental needs, or even more financial needs only. Those are legitimate good needs. Yes, come to God. But more than that, recognize that there is a spiritual need in your life and in my life. Recognize that we are sinners in need of the grace of God. That I need forgiveness of sin. And I need newness in my life. I need to have turnaround in my life to help, to ask God to help us to walk in discipleship. And therefore, let's come to the Lord in the right reason. I believe that today's message will be a blessing from you. As you read so many puzzling questions, let's continue to believe that God, He can provide. Not just our need, but more than that. He's compassionate, He's able, and He can use you to partner with Him. And at the puzzling moment, we know 
that we have to come to Him with a humble heart, not with pride and arrogance. And also, there are times that you may be asking God for miracle, for healing, but yet, miracles of healing does not come. Or maybe, God gives you partial healing, and you may be asking, why? It's because God may use process. But far beyond all this, there is a certainty, certainty and confidence that our God cares, He can. Let's come to Him with our greatest need, our soul, that we are sinners saved by, by grace. And as 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. The new is here. Ask ourselves, are we a new creation? Are we still working with God despite all the uncertainties? Has the pandemic in the past one year distracted and derailed us in our discipleship with God? Has the pandemic distracted and derailed us in our word of God, in our prayer life, in our connection with other believers? in our spiritual life. So much so that we only concern about our bread and butter, finance. Yes, those are our needs. But more than that, let's come back to God and say, God, my soul longs for you. And wherever you are, let me ask you, those who are in this hall, let's stand and let's respond to God as we sing this song. Once again, come to God in prayer.
acknowledging to God that we are sinner in need of God's grace. To come before the Lord in humility once again and to ask God and say, God, I need you. I know that you're compassionate. You can meet all my needs physically, mentally, emotionally, relationally, financially, in my study, in my work, in my career. Yes. But at the same time, let's come before God with our spiritual needs. The need of our soul, the need of our spirit. And says, God, cleanse me, heal me, touch my heart once again. Let's take time for you personally to pray that. Let's pray. Yes, Lord. Shandala basida de Lord. Sukure alaba baba baba basida de Lord. Shikire alaba shandala basidi de Lord. Hallelujah, Father God. Come on, church. Reach out to God and ask Him to touch your spirit, your soul, and your mind. Right now, reach out to Him. Use this time to really have a transaction, a spiritual transaction with God. Yes, Lord. Shandala basida de Lord. Shukure alaba baba baba basida de Lord. Oh, hallelujah, Father God. Yes. Touch our heart, O oh God. Touch our soul, O oh Lord. Touch us, O oh God. We need you, Father Lord. Forgive our sin, Father God. Take away our pride. Take away our self-righteousness. That we will always be humble before you, O oh Lord. Oh, shandala baba baba basida de Lord. Shkiriala basandala basidi Lord. Yes, God, today, as we heard your message, we ask that you speak to us, that we will always have a responsive heart, receptive mind, that your word will be seed that will be sowed into the fertile ground. Let our heart and mind always be that fertile ground to see you as the bread of life, not just to provide for us financially, but also provide for us spiritually. Because we have a spiritual need. Help us, Father God, that even as we are believers for many years, that we will not have that pride and self-righteousness to say that we have been there, done that, but yet we always maintain a learning heart to come before Jesus, not like a Pharisee, but like a child with a pure heart and a humble heart. And therefore, Father God, when our soul has been restored, renewed, comes the blessing that we will be blessed by you in all our aspects of our life. And we will also be a channel, a vessel to bless others. Thank you, Father Lord, for your word. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name we ask and we pray. Amen. Please be seated. As we end, let me encourage you. As you hear this word, there are two reflection questions that I would like you to ponder. And these two reflection questions is available in our bulletin online. And as you hear the message, take this home with you and ask yourself this. What are the certainties that we should grasp from this three puzzling moments? Mark chapter 8, verses 1 to 26. And at the same time, ask yourself, what is the significance of these uncertainties in your life? Be a doer of God's word. And last but not least, let me give you some announcement before we end. First and foremost, if you are watching this first time with us, we would like you to scan the QR code that's provided so that we get to know you. We want to welcome you. If you are not do so, if you, you have watched us online or join us, I will encourage you to do so so that we can connect with you. And secondly, we also want to uh, give you this announcement that uh, later on, we will have a special time with the young people, 2 o'clock through the Zoom. We have a special fun time of talk to all the young people. I would like to uh, invite you to come and to join us. And uh, the third announcement is that as we have reopened for the uh, physical church, we would like your cooperation to register yourself online with the Eventbrite app every Sunday as you come. That will help us to gauge how many people to be in this hall 
Now, this hall is more than enough to accommodate everyone. We can have up to 65 seats. So, let me encourage you to come. Because when you come together in this place, physically, there's something different. It will help you to engage more. It will help you to worship. It will help you to get an atmosphere where you can really worship God and focus. And also, last but not least, number four, there's online prayer every Tuesday night, every Friday morning. And I'd like to invite you to join us every Tuesday for the online prayer. And if you're working from home, you have the flexibility of time, join us on Friday morning for online prayer. Let's continue to intercede. And let's continue to pray. So that's all. God bless you. And this Sunday morning, I pray that God will continue to bless your soul as we conclude our Sunday service. So God bless all of you. See all of you next Sunday. Thank you.